Hello, listeners. I'm Michael Lanspa, Web Director for the ATS Critical Care Assembly. Thanks for listening in. I'm joined today by Dr. Christopher Seymour, Assistant Professor of Critical Care and Emergency Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh, and Dr. Stephen Simpson, Professor of Medicine and Pulmonary and Critical Care at the University of Kansas. Our topic today concerns the third international consensus definitions for sepsis and septic shock, which were published earlier this year in JAMA. First, thank you, gentlemen, for joining me in what I hope will be an insightful discussion. Thanks for having us, Mike. I'd like to start with Chris. Why did we need to revise the definition for sepsis and septic shock? What was lacking with the old definition? Thanks, Michael. So the new definition derived from a two-year process uh, that was commissioned by two of our leading critical care societies. And they started with the premise that sepsis currently was a syndrome without any validated criterion standard and had two prior attempts to generate a definition and criteria, now known as sepsis 2 and sepsis 1, in 2003 and 1991 or 92, respectively. The existing definition and criteria have come under some criticism because they've provided us a long list of clinical signs and symptoms for a very difficult-to-recognize syndrome. And in addition, there was some redundancy and overlapping terms in terms of uh, the semantics that we use to describe septic patients whether they might have severe sepsis, whether they might be septic, or have septicemia. In fact, SIRS criteria, which have been around for a number of decades, were not part of sepsis 2 criteria put forth almost 12 years ago. And yet, they are routinely used in clinical practice and uh, have a role in how we take care of patients. With this confusion about terms and criteria, these two critical care societies decided to get together, uh, put together a panel of experts uh, with a variety of backgrounds and expertise, and use data to generate a new definition and new criteria. Steve, what are your thoughts? Do you think that there was uh, a need to revise the older definition, or do you think that uh, the older definition works? Mike, I think there's no absolute need for a new definition, Uh, although I really don't have any problem with the idea that sepsis as an overall entity represents life-threatening organ dysfunction due to a dysregulated host response to infection. That idea is actually implicit in the current definitions and manifested in the diagnostic criteria for severe sepsis. And I think it's important to say that what we previously called definitions should probably more strictly have been referred to as diagnostic criteria. I've been teaching for 25 years now that the serious consideration in those criteria is the organ dysfunction and that the onset of organ dysfunction heralds a clear worsening in prognosis from infection, whether or not SIRS is present. Um, uh, I do think that it represents a bit of a problem, though, that 19 individuals appointed by two critical care societies decided that the specific meaning of a specific word that already has a particular common and truly consensus usage is now supposed to be different. There may have been consensus in the room, but I think there is decidedly not consensus amongst other users of the word. Um, There is a usefulness, I believe, in recognizing that the entity of sepsis itself doesn't have a binary off-on switch and that the recognition of it can't actually be a binary process that fails to recognize gradations in the severity of the infection and in the host response. Uh, While having a concise definition is a good thing, 
we have to be careful how we approach translating that definition into identifying sepsis and knowing it when we see it. Now, as I say, I think it's true that what we've been calling definitions of sepsis are actually diagnostic criteria. So I think that making a concise definition of the entity isn't a bad thing. Um, but I do object to the reforming of the diagnostic criteria. And I do want to point out that we still don't actually have a concise pathophysiological or molecular or epigenetic description of sepsis as when we diagnose some other critical illnesses. Um, for example, when we look at uh, localized ST segment elevation or increased troponin levels, we, we kind of have a fundamental understanding that myocardial tissue is necrosing in a way that SIRS, SOFA, QSOFA, MUSE, NEWS, or what have you don't tell us this is a specific set of biochemical phenomena with a specific meaning to the organism. So the sepsis three authors really are attempting to change a less-than-specific syndrome to another less-than-specific syndrome. And it feels like, in a pretty real sense, we're attempting to rearrange the deck chairs on this titanic disease and call it a victory because we used a lot of data to do it. So Steve had mentioned about the difference between using a definition as well as clinical criteria to identify sepsis and septic shock. And the consensus guidelines appear to be very particular about offering both a definition as well as a clinical criteria. Uh, Chris, do you mind explaining the difference between the, the two? Sure, Mike. So I think Steve has made some great points about some of the epistemology here that's gone on in the past few years in separating definition from criteria. And I, I totally agree that as we reflect back, sepsis 2 and sepsis 1 may have presented, in fact, diagnostic criteria as opposed to definition, or in fact, words that capture what we think sepsis, quote, is, unquote. And in fact, one of the most sort of readily accessible definitions of sepsis may have been from the Marinoff Symposium in 2010, when a variety of stakeholders were gathered together to come up with the words uh, that we can use to describe sepsis for the lay public. And in fact, that lay definition was a life-threatening condition that arises when the body's response to infection injures its own tissues and organs. And this was sort of became the foundation of the the definition that, that Steve had mentioned earlier that's found in sepsis 3. And I think we can use this to encompass the concepts, although not perfect, of what we think sepsis is. But those concepts don't always relate directly to the clinical care at the bedside. And although there have been diagnostic criteria that have been presented in the past, there is a whole variety of data from observational studies that may show they have different operating characteristics, meaning different sensitivity or specificity in different populations. And depending on where you stand, you may think that the prior criteria, those based upon SIRS, are either too sensitive and not specific, or in some cases, too specific and not sensitive. And this depends on which data set you're looking at. In order to bring clarity to that question and derive criteria from data, the task force looked at a large databases of electronic health records to come up with tools that a clinician could use at the bedside after they've suspected infection, not as a screening test, but after they've suspected infection to identify patients likely to be septic. And those are the criteria based upon SOFA and QSOFA, as Steve mentioned, that are found in sepsis 3. Steve, do you have any response to that? 
Yes, I think that was uh, really great what Chris just said, and, and it all makes very good sense. And I think, like I said before, what we've been using would have been better characterized as diagnostic criteria than as definitions. And again, I'm okay with defining an overall entity of sepsis in this way. Uh, and I think, though, uh, that if we abandon the concept of SIRS, we do ourselves and our patients a disservice for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, I think we're giving away some nuance in our approach by narrowing sepsis down to two categories instead of recognizing that the first rung on the ladder is infection with some sort of systematic manifestations and then that patients progress. And second, I think we're giving up on some of our lead time for mounting an aggressive response that SIRS provides for us. Um, SIRS is present earlier in the course of infection than Q-SOFA. Um, although it's not as specific as Q-SOFA, SIRS is more sensitive, at least for mortality. And in a recently published paper for the composite outcome of prolonged ICU stay or mortality. Um, by the way, you may notice that I'm not really putting up too much of a fight about SOFA for identifying some level of sepsis in the ICU. Um, even though it's not in common use in ICUs most places, uh, the data are all there in almost every patient that's in an ICU, and we could either memorize the criteria over time or have our uh, electronic medical record calculate it for us. But... But, and this is where uh, I bump into some difficulty, the CDC says that 80% of sepsis cases arise outside the hospital, and the ICU is hardly the portal of entry for um, anybody who gets their sepsis outside the hospital. So I'm more concerned with how we identify sepsis early and prevent ICU admissions altogether. And as a result of my experiences with the Kansas Sepsis Project, I'm much more interested in helping docs in rural and remote places be able to identify their patients early and keep them in their own communities. Those are some great points. I'd like to raise one of the criticisms that's been mentioned about the sepsis-3 definition, and that's that the sepsis-3 definition is based on a retrospective study. Now, it's an extremely well-done retrospective study, but there have been some criticisms raised about that. Steve, what's your opinion about the retrospective nature of this study? Frankly, I have absolutely no problem with retrospective nature of the study. And, and I even do studies of similar nature myself, and I think they're useful and they can give us insights that we wouldn't otherwise be able to get. On top of that, and I want to say this, Chris, I think, is an outstanding researcher, and he has an outstanding team and did some careful research, and I don't doubt any of the data that, that they came up with. What I do think is a problem is a declaration that we should wholesale replace diagnostic criteria that are currently being used as the foundation to demonstrably improve the survival uh, from sepsis highly deadly illness based on based on a retrospective analysis that, as good as it is, is still retrospective. Uh, it's an interesting idea, but is this going to allow physicians to save more lives? They haven't provided evidence that it's going to do that and isn't, well, in my mind, that's the goal. Um, I can't think of what other goal would trump the goal of saving more patient lives. It feels as if the research was set up based on a tautology or a self-reinforcing experiment uh, 
because they chose to compare the, the newly reimagined sepsis against the current meaning of the word sepsis. Uh, they they should, I think, more appropriately have compared their new definition, which essentially is infection with organ dysfunction, to the current severe sepsis, which is the level of severity in our current system that requires the presence of organ dysfunction. If they were being strict, obviously, they would have compared infection plus SIRS plus organ dysfunction to the new definition. And that feels or strikes me as it would be a more appropriate comparison. I don't really understand why they set up the analysis the way they did, other than, and Chris, I'm just teasing here, unless they wanted to prove that their kung fu is stronger than the old kung fu, so to speak. Um, it, it feels like a purely semantic argument when we set up sepsis versus sepsis. Now, fortunately, I've been privileged to review a number of papers for publication since the sepsis three publication where people actually do compare uh, severe sepsis versus sepsis and look at areas of overlap between SIRS and QSOFA and severe sepsis and et cetera. And in fact, I've done some work of that nature and will be presenting at the chess meeting in Los Angeles. Um, but I think that's another way of asking how many people with QSOFA have SIRS, how many SIRS patients also have QSOFA, what's the relationship, and can we understand that better? It just feels like we should really, in that paper, have compared severe sepsis to the newly defined sepsis if we were going to get some kind of answers about whether this is actually a better system or not. This is Chris. I mean, I appreciate those uh, compliments on the rigor of our research, and I also think that these are all very good and detailed suggestions. Uh, one certainly can't do every scientific question under the sun in one project, uh, although for something as important as this, this was certainly a very broad attempt. In fact, the largest observational study, I think, that's been published in our field. Uh, but to that end, there are different buckets one could come up with, depending on whether infection's present, SIRS is present, SOFA is present, and a whole variety of combinations of those. Instead of just thinking about who had what scores, when the study was designed, it was really brought about conceptually as if a doctor is at the bedside and is looking at their patient, perhaps aware of their demographics and their age and their comorbidities, and then having already ascribed them as to be infected, what other clinical signs and symptoms will identify that patient as likely to be septic? And that was a scientific question. Now, we could argue that maybe that wasn't the correct scientific question for the application that Steve is, is wanting his tool, uh, but that's where the task force started. I think it is important to know about what signs and symptoms are present prior to suspected infection, right? If we're thinking about uh, where perhaps there's a knowledge gap, and that is, I'm going to put this under a screening test for sepsis, and it's incredibly hard to find given that there's no gold standard, um, although we could perhaps use sepsis 3 as a gold standard. What's the data at this sort of tip of the spear, whether it's in pre-hospital care or on initial triage into the ED that will identify these patients. And it likely, and we'll probably see this in a lot of data coming out, as Steve mentioned from his group, others all around the world, it's a combination of SIRS, SOFA, QSOFA, all together. And that will likely help us screen for these patients who have not yet been identified. But what's really interesting, and we found this in our observational work for sepsis 3, is that the majority of patients are already getting their antibiotics and having suspected infection occur quite promptly uh, in the ED. 
and that the time gain in that uh, in that unrecognized group that you might need to screen in, uh, it's a much smaller population uh, than perhaps we're thinking about. And, and you know, we're anchored in the, the single missed cases that I think are not borne out by the epidemiology. And we are all for finding every last case, but it gets down to be an issue of how you build a model that's not too complex for doctors with too many variables or, or clinicians of any training um, that can capture the right patients. And well, we admit there's much more work to be done. Those are great responses, and I completely agree with the uh, more work to be done. One of the things I liked about the sepsis-3 uh, paper was the uh, expectation that there will be a sepsis-4 and possibly a sepsis-5 definition down the road. I- I'd like to talk a little bit more about uh, the identification of infection, which both of you guys have uh, brought up. And one of the key challenges in both uh, the old and the new definitions of sepsis is that the identification of infection is often a subjective judgment made by clinicians. So, Chris, how does the sepsis-3 definition identify infection? This is a very good question, and, and of course, suspected infection, not confirmed infection, but suspected is key to the new definition, as well as the criteria. But developing criteria for infection would be like providing a new version of Harrison's, right? So, uh, there are criteria for abdominal uh, infections, urinary tract infections, pneumonia that are put forth by, by our astute colleagues that are infectious disease experts um, and were not viewed this task then, therefore, was not viewed as the mandate of the task force. Um, but rather, once suspected infection is present by the clinician's judgment, then we begin looking for these other criteria put forth in sepsis 3. Now, believe it or not, this issue of suspected infection is where I think Steve and I have a fantastic amount of common ground because I use clinically and we all use clinically SIRS criteria to help us decide whether suspected infection is present. So I don't know that this pro-con is really about whether SIRS criteria is in or out of sepsis 3, but rather where it sits. And I feel and use it in my practice that it sits in helping me decide whether the patient's infected or not. Uh, what are your thoughts about that, Steve? Well, and, uh, I think Chris is is right on the money in a lot of ways. I think, and and he's right. We have a lot of common ground here on this, but but I think this is a tough thing, and it seems like it should be so easy because if you look in your in your sepsis one and sepsis two diagnostic criteria, it, you'll see that sepsis or infection, I, I should say, is defined as the invasion of normally sterile tissues with microorganisms. And okay, that's a great easy definition, right? But how do you take it to the bedside? Now, I will say that people, I think, have been struggling on that issue, and and I think I have some help for that struggle potentially. So with the original sepsis criteria, the panel, I think, made a very reasonable assumption that all doctors are taught in medical school how to recognize specific infection syndromes, such as, for example, uh, cough with purulent sputum and pleuritic chest pain and consolidation on physical exam. Obviously, pneumonia, maybe cellulitis with an advancing margin in pain, or a UTI with flank pain and CVA or costovertebral angle tenderness. So those are syndromes that people learn in medical school that point to an infection. Now, I'll tell you, though, what I think people have often been doing 
is this, and I see this happen so often in my house staff, and I hear it happen with other people as well. So they go, okay, so so the nurse just called me, and there's fever, and the guy's tachycardic, so he's got SIRS, so I should suspect infection. And, oh, now, I suspect infection, and I have SIRS, so I must have sepsis. And this becomes a circular argument, I think, and does kind of take us off the rails a little bit, because I think... Where we go wrong is we fail to recognize these infection syndromes, and that's what the people who originally designed this intended. Uh, Pay attention to your infection syndromes, and then if you have SIRS present, and then if you have organ dysfunction present, then there's particular meaning. And and frankly, I'm a little concerned that with QSOFA, people uh, will be likely to go, oh, this guy's got his mental status is off, so I should suspect sepsis here, and my argument's going to become circular again. But I think in point of fact, I I keep going back to SIRS because I think that it's an important point that SIRS and SIRS with infection actually do have data to support that they are important components of critical illness, and, and that was demonstrated all the way back in the 80s and 90s. But SIRS, I think, was considered to be a factor that increased the probability of a bad outcome infection, which in, indeed it does, although it is not and was not considered the be-all and end-all of diagnosing severe sepsis, or what Chris would now call sepsis. That's a great point, Steve. You had mentioned about uh, the QSOFA. I think that's a great transition to the next question here. And the new definition incorporates SOFA and QSOFA scores to help determine sepsis. And some opponents of the sepsis-3 definition have voiced concerns that these scores are predictors of mortality rather than predictors of the presence of sepsis. Uh, Steve, what's your thought on the role of SOFA and QSOFA in the diagnosis of sepsis? So so that, Mike, actually gets to the heart of another problem that some of us have with with the actual study uh, or data that support the new definition, and that is why use mortality or prolonged ICU stay as our outcomes of interest for the particular purpose of identifying patients. Now, I will grant you this, that when a charismatic person like Derek Angus stands at the podium and says, well, we wanted to identify individuals who were going to do really badly, it was even easy for me to momentarily lose my conviction on this. But the simple fact is that these are the outcomes that we should be aiming to eliminate. So they are actually the very reasons that we need to identify septic patients early in their course. So with sepsis 3, we've identified a bunch of people who are not going to do well regardless of what we do for them. Remember, they've already had at least antibiotics. Would shock me if they hadn't had fluids too, although that's not part of the study. Um, We actually ought to be asking, how do we predict, and Chris touched on this before, who's going to get to that level of severity so that we intervene before they do? So, So in my mind, The patients we're identifying are the worst of the septic patients, not the prototype of the septic patient. And I wouldn't want to hold off on diagnosing a patient with sepsis until they reach that state of stage of illness if I have some alternative. So now when I wrote my con editorial in chest, I was conjecturing based on experience that QSOFA was a relatively late finding in the course of sepsis. But there's a recently published paper in the Blue Journal in I suppose, even though people who are listening to this probably know I'm referring to the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, um, 
But in, in that paper from a group at the University of Chicago, it shows that for people who are going to manifest that composite outcome of prolonged ICU stay or death, that infection and SIRS is present in the majority of them 17 hours before the actual event of ICU stay or death, while QSOFA is present a median of five hours before the event. So, in other words, in, in my mind, if we cue on the SIRS and take advantage of that clue, we could get a 12-hour lead time on getting the various things done that we need to get done for a septic patient. So with an organized approach to treating those patients, we could probably avoid many of them ever getting Q-sulfa or any other manifestations of severe sepsis. So this is Chris. I'm, I'm happy to sort of offer a, a, perhaps a competing view to that or at least some commentary. The first, So there's two points that Steve has brought up. The first is the problem of a gold standard. And so there was the, the discussion here is whether using mortality as an outcome in, in this study is a fatal flaw. And perhaps the question ought to be, when doing a retrospective study of criteria, to compare criteria for sepsis, what should be our gold standard? And I pose that question to any clinical researcher who's listening, because we won't agree. Uh, and that's not because... Um, one's right or the other's wrong, but rather because there just is no answer. And and it's really shown in Chanu Ri's data from Harvard where he's put septic cases in front of clinicians and asked them just as recently as a year ago before sepsis 3 was released if they thought the patient had SIRS, if they thought the patient was septic or had septic shock. And even expert clinicians, even in our current day and age, have wide variety in their agreement about whether a case in front of them, clinical case review, um, is in fact septic. And so chart reviews actually still pose a problem in identifying whether they're a patient's septic or not. Now imagine trying to do chart reviews on 4 million electronic health records. So this is not feasible for such a large observa observational study as well. And so what we're left with is trying to understand how to find criteria for a syndrome in which there is no gold standard. Now, we didn't sit there and make this up. In fact, we looked at our colleagues and our scientists outside of our field, in the field of psychiatry. And there, when studying criterion validity, of course, there are many varieties of criterion validity, but one of those is predictive validity. And this is a validity test that we can measure for different criteria, and it refers to identifying a later outcome believed to be strongly associated with the disease of interest. Now, I think that some of us sitting around the table might agree that death is strongly associated with sepsis among patients who are infected. And although Steve thinks that may be too distal, we ran a variety of sensitivity analyses that included other outcomes, such as a stay in the ICU or a course where a patient fared badly. And it was these outcomes that could be measured across five different data sets using different electronic health records in a very generalizable way uh, that led us through the analyses that were presented. So that's the first point about the outcome. The second point about timing is also really important. And of course, Matt Chirpek's paper, Chicago, is fantastic and used great methods. But what it also points to is that Steve is emphasizing a screening test. He's interested in and we all are interested in finding these patients early. 
our analyses did not look at criteria to help us identify an infected patient, where we think SIRS very well could play a role. And in fact, it's after the administration of antibiotics or a body fluid culture that QSOFA was found to have higher predictive validity than SIRS for patients who were likely to fare badly. So another important point that Steve mentioned was that SIRS criteria were present prior to QSOFA. And in fact, a larger proportion of patients in the CHIRPEC data may have had two or more SIRS criteria. The association between SIRS and the ultimate poor outcomes was actually equivalent, if not less, than QSOFA. So if we're going to trade off timing and sensitivity, we also have to be mindful of the specificity. Because although there may be benefits to patients in early recognition, there are certainly harms in overtreatment and administering antibiotics or fluids to those patients who don't need it. So I think we have to think about both sides of that coin when thinking about a potential screening test. That's a great point about the use of these definitions as a screening test. We're out of time, so we'll have to end the first half of this debate here. Thank you so much for listening, and please listen in to the second half of this debate available online at the ATS Critical Care website. This is Mike Lanspo for the ATS Critical Care Assembly. Thank you.